miracles. Those uh, exceptional events, man, they can be impossible to explain apart from divine intervention. You know, the hand of God intervening on our behalf and understandably they capture our attention and they stir our emotions because they're extraordinary by nature. Miracles make headlines like we just saw in the video. They get some people talking, other people afraid, some people wondering, other people testifying to the source of the power at work when true miracles do occur. And when we see the word miracles in the New Testament so often, that is the Greek word dunamis, which means power. And in the Hebrew, the word mopheth is used to describe miracles, which is translated as a display of God's power. So to be clear, to be sure, a miracle, if it truly is a miracle, is not simply a wild stroke of luck, you know, something that happens against all odds. It isn't having the winning lottery ticket. Miracles are always associated, true miracles, with the power of God at work in and through people and circumstances. And there's always a greater end to the miracle beyond simply the miracle itself. There's always a, a higher purpose. And so as we continue in our sermon series this morning, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to work through the remainder of chapter 9 today in the book of Acts and talk about this subject of miracles. And interestingly enough, as we have already completed working through the first eight chapter of Acts and most of chapter 9, we've already witnessed, at least what I believe, uh, to be three of the most extraordinary miracles that God has ever performed. There's a handful in my estimation anyway, of miracles that fall into the category of greatest ever. Uh, certainly the creation story in Genesis would be one that would qualify in my book of greatest miracles ever. Another would be the atoning uh, sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then there are three others here in the first eight chapters, uh, eight and a half chapters of Acts. One is the birth of the church, which we see in Acts 2. All right, and the, the church is the unified body of Christ worldwide. When we say the church, that's what we mean. The spiritual coming together and unification of people from every race, every background, every generation, every culture, every walk of life on the entire planet for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which could never be achieved outside of the power of God at work within us. No way. Number two would be the redemption of the human soul, which we see many examples of, of course, uh, in Acts and throughout Scripture. And, of course, that continues today. And think about the redemption of the human soul. It is almost something unfathomable. It, we talk about it, of course, and we, we hear about it all of our lives, particularly if you've grown up in a Christian context or a Christian home or even just by attending church. And so it hardly, I think, sounds remarkable to us anymore because it's become so commonplace to say I've been saved or to hear people say, Jesus, save me from my sins and so forth. So it becomes somewhat unremarkable to us something that's uh, maybe simply part of our cultural context. But if you were here last week and you consider the life of Saul, of Tarsus, this absolute wretch of a human being, being extended the gift of grace and forgiveness and redemption, if you really take the time to consider that, it would be akin to Osama bin Laden before his death, experiencing salvation and then becoming one of the greatest evangelists and Christian authors of all time. 
That is almost unfathomable to think about. And yet what is even more shocking is the fact that every one of us was just as guilty as Saul of Tarsus before we were called by God and then sought the forgiveness and saving grace that can only come from Jesus Christ. It's nothing short of staggering to consider what Jesus has done for us. And that can only be accomplished by the power of God. And then number three, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit as he comes and lives within the followers of Christ. We see them baptized in the Holy Spirit, this indwelling, resident, and empowering work of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us is truly a miracle. And, and we see simple, uh, otherwise uneducated men here confound the wise with their wisdom and understanding because of divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. Fishermen performing supernatural healings and common men and women, followers of Jesus who are being hunted down and killed for their faith, continuing to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel even amidst the worst persecution. None of this is achievable without the Holy Spirit at work within them. And these are some of the reasons that I personally find the book of Acts so compelling, so engaging, because not only do we see so many miracles and these exceptional acts of God happening through his people and all throughout the story, but as Peter states in Acts 2.38 and 39 concerning the work of salvation and the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise, meaning the promise of salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit that they're now witnessing. He says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In fact, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That includes all of us. That means that same Holy Spirit at work in these early followers of Christ that gave them the power to perform miracles is at work in the followers of Christ today. It is available to and at work in each one of us that is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus made it clear to his followers in John 14, 11, and 12. Uh, when he said, believe me that I am uh, in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Okay, the works that he's referring to here are not only his teachings and his leading, that's part of it, but it's also the miracles that he performed. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Okay, he didn't say, whoever believes in me in the first century will also do the works that I do. No, he didn't say whoever. He said anyone that follows me, right? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. That includes all of us. So it's important that uh, we not only view the book of Acts in a historical light, but also as a great example of what the church in our lives could look like today as we submit ourselves to Christ to the same extent that these early believers did. And that's a key ingredient to seeing the same kinds of results.
There must be a pure and absolute commitment to the cause of Christ if we're to expect miraculous works to be happening in and out of our church and in our lives, okay? So we're going to jump back in our story now and explore some of these aspects of true miracles that we learn from what was happening through those early Christians, keeping in mind that we also have this same power available to us in the present age. And once we become truly convinced of that, by the way, and we allow our faith to grow because of that fact, we may just begin to experience our walk with Christ through this life in a whole new paradigm, in a whole new way. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 9, starting on verse 32. And from this verse through the rest of the chapter, we learn some important facts about miracles. The first being that all true miracles come from God alone. Okay? All true miracles come from God alone. I'm sure you've heard people use the phrase, He's a miracle worker. And in this day and age, I think that's used for just about anyone, right? If you're a hairstylist, does a really great job on your head, she's a miracle worker, right? I hear people say it all the time. If your, your dog trainer teaches your out-of-control pet to sit or stand and lay down, not bark all the time, he's a miracle worker. In fact, I think most any difficult task these days that is overcome by a little ingenuity and creativity and some hard work is often described as a miracle. And it seems we've maybe cheapened that word a little bit. But as we'll see, all true miracles come from God alone. And so as we continue the story here, we now see Peter moving throughout the coastal region of Judea, spreading the gospel everywhere he goes. Okay, So Acts 9, starting on verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Luda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Okay, Peter not only knows for himself exactly who's responsible for the miracle of healing given to Aeneas. But he also wants him to understand it as well. So Peter leaves absolutely no ambiguity on the matter. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And if we look back at chapter 3, verse 6, when Peter and John encounter the lame man who's begging at the entrance of the temple complex, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He leaves no room for anyone to wonder who he's talking about, all right? Peter understands that to heal in the name of Jesus was to invoke the power of the risen Christ. This is why we end our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ. And people have asked me, well, how do we know we do that, praying in his name, and that there's any real power or effect? The answer is because Jesus tells us as much. In John chapter 14, we already read verse 12, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. But then if we keep reading the next two verses, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, in the ancient world, a person's name represented everything about them. Their nature, what they were like, what they were about. Which is why God sometimes changed people's names after they placed their faith and trust in Him. Because their nature, what they were like, had changed. And so when Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
course, he's referring to anything according to his will, according to his nature, anything that agrees with who he is. That's what his name represents. This is a, a further confirmed in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, where John, who was with Jesus, by the way, when he made these statements, we, we just read. Now he says, John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Clearly, when we pray, when we make uh, any request of God according to his will, we're to invoke the name of Jesus Christ, which means we're invoking his power and presence into that prayer. And obviously, Peter saw that this was a necessary aspect of prayer. Anytime he was asking for the miraculous to occur, and therefore, so should we. Okay? There are cessationists today, those folks who don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are any longer valid, who say that the working of miracles died with the apostles. And that's actually a very popular cessationist argument. It's been written about extensively. But in my own study in hermeneutic, my own interpretation of Scripture, that, that view takes at least some of the credit for the working of miracles off of God and puts it onto the apostles themselves, which does not agree with Scripture at all. The, the power for working miracles comes solely from God. But if we say that miracles could only be valid through the apostles' ministry, then what we're saying is that same power and promise working in Acts 2 that Peter said was for all generations somehow becomes less powerful in everyone else after those original apostles died off. Which means that the Holy Spirit is then somehow restricted in believers today compared to those first century Christians. But that, in my view, gives far too much credit to the individual believer, no matter who it is. And far less credit to the power of Jesus Christ, the working of the Holy Spirit, who Hebrews 13.8 says is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I just don't buy the argument. That miracles are no longer valid today because they died with the apostles. Obviously, we cannot always know the will of Christ in every situation. And I know there's no magic formula, by the way. I don't mean when we say Jesus' name at the end of every prayer that we're guaranteed to receive the answer that we desire. The point is that we should pray according to his will. And to the best of our ability, always do so in line with the nature of who he is. And we recognize his power and authority and sovereignty over our prayers when we invoke his name. It's a good way to do that. So you understand this is a heart issue. Okay, it's not a formula issue. As is so often the case in the church, I think at times we've been guilty over the years with taking a heart issue and we try to turn it into a formula issue that we kind of package up and we, you know, we put it into a book or a pamphlet. And we tell people that if you'll just say this prayer just the right way, that God will magically prosper us. But as soon as we turn his scripture into a formula for personal gain, we've completely lost the heart and the spirit behind his word. And we're no longer then praying, by the way, according to his will. Okay? So again, what's the point? The point is don't get hung up on formulas when you pray. Rather, pray according to His revealed will in Scripture to the best of your ability and always submit that prayer to the authority and power and will of Jesus Christ. And what happens after that is altogether up to Him. And sometimes that means the miraculous, by the way. 
Okay? So all true miracles come from God. The second point that we learn about miracles from our text in, in verse 35... So we're going to continue reading together, starting at the end of verse 34, as Peter's just prayed for uh, Aeneas, Aeneas, and he says, And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Okay, all true miracles point to God. If you see someone performing fantastic works, no matter how amazing, if they're doing it for personal gain, it should be a giant red flag that this is not the power of God at work. It, it may be supernatural. The Bible speaks of counterfeit signs and wonders. And we know from the book of Revelation that the Antichrist and false prophet will perform some miracles. So the power of the enemy may be at work in some false signs and wonders. Or, or what appears to be miraculous may simply be cheap magic tricks illusions, false testimonies, false prophecies, and so on. But a true miracle of God will always point to God. That doesn't mean that everyone who witnesses a true miracle of God will always see God in it. But that's an indictment against man, not against God. In Acts chapter 14 and 15, after Paul performs a miracle of healing on a man who was crippled from birth, the crowds tried to worship him and Barnabas. And Paul responds with men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So, obviously we cannot always expect unbelievers to know or understand or see the true source of a miracle. Why? Because they don't know God. They don't know the giver of the miracle. That's where we come in. By the way, it's our job to illuminate people to the true source of a miracle and the working power where it comes from. And so we need to be wary of those claiming to be miracle workers, especially when the miracles performed are always in conjunction with a plea for money. Because true miracles point to God. They don't point to us, and they don't point to our own personal gain. Um, there's a guy on late night television, I'm not making fun here, who will actually send you what he calls no evil oil. I couldn't believe it when I first saw it. It was recently. I, I thought, I honestly, I thought it was some kind of like late night comedy show making fun of TV preachers. But he's serious. He sends a vial of this no evil oil with an instruction manual about how to use it. And then plastered all over his program and website are suggested amounts of money that you should send him depending upon what kind of blessing you're seeking. So for $333, he says you can sow your distressed seed to break the bondage in your life. He calls it a breakthrough seed. Costs you $333. There's a prophetic seed for $430, and it goes on and on from there. There's a DVD series you can purchase entitled Five Power Keys to Possessing the Wealth of the Wicked. Those of you who know me... <laughs> You've been here for any length of time. You know that I don't believe in Christians bashing other Christians. I don't do that. Especially in public or on public forums or from, from the pulpit. We're talking about false religion here. This is heresy. 
And it is my scriptural mandate as a pastor to speak out loud and clear when it comes to false teachers and false prophets trying to worm their way into the true body of Christ. Listen to me. Anyone trying to sell you a miracle is not from God. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 8, verse 20, when Simon the magician tries to pay Peter for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Right? Don't be lured into this nonsense on television or anywhere else, including in the church, by the way, that if you pay enough money, you will get your miracle. That is false teaching. That is prosperity gospel, and it is a, a twisted manipulation of the Word of God, abused by false teachers to line their own pockets. We are certainly commanded to give to the church ministry. All right? And don't stop giving in the offering now. Including financially. Is there blessing associated with that? Yes, of course there is. It's all through scripture. That's another sermon for another day. But the reason we give is never to purchase or earn the good gifts that God gives freely. Okay? True miracles point to God. Not to the preacher, the TV evangelist, your prayer partner, or the man on the street. Okay? There is no miracle oil. There is no miracle cloth. There is no miracle anything short of the power of the Holy Spirit of God working through us or in any given situation. And the true miracle, when it does come, will never be something that we've earned or paid for. All right? On the contrary, that will always be a free gift given by God according to His will. All right? Let's keep going in the story from verse 36 where we see uh, our third point, all true miracles have a higher purpose. All right? The miracle, uh, the event, the act, the healing, whatever the miracle is, is never an end unto itself. There's always a higher purpose served by the truly miraculous. So let's keep reading, and we'll expound on this a little more from verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. For what it's worth, I would have stuck with Tabitha. But that's just me. As a point of interest, the name Tabitha in the Aramaic and Dorcas in the Greek, they both mean gazelle. And names, again, in the ancient times we talked about, they were generally given very intentionally according to their meaning. And so we can certainly deduce as we continue reading by the description uh, of Dorcas in these verses that like a gazelle, she was very graceful. She was full of grace as she served the underprivileged uh, diligently. She was uh, very beautiful on the inside. And although we don't know for sure, I'd like to think that she was also very beautiful on the outside because with a name like Dorcas, you, you kind of need something working for you, you know what I mean, to overcome that anyway. It's just me, sorry. Okay, we need to get back to the Bible. Verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa that many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. 
Okay, Dorcas's home was Joppa. That uh, is a name that means beauty, by the way. Joppa was a very ancient place. Some actually say that it goes all the way back to the uh, antediluvian times, the, the pre-flood era. And actually Joppa may have derived its name from Japheth, one of the sons of Noah, although we don't know that for certain. But without a doubt, this was a very beautiful and very ancient place. And it was in Joppa that this saintly woman, who was obviously not only beloved in the community, but also very involved with acts of justice, she, uh, she helped those in need a lot, specifically the poor and the widows, which were often the same. And it was wonderful for her friends and family, at least, that she was raised from the dead. But what is the greater miracle here? The fact that she was raised from the dead, or the fact that because of the miracle, many more became Christ followers. You see, it wasn't better for Dorcas to come back to her earthly life. Verse 36 says she was a disciple. She was a follower of Jesus. So she was in a far better place. She was with Christ after she died. So it wasn't better for her to be brought back from the dead. But because she was raised from the dead, many others who were already spiritually dead consequently came to life. So which is the greater miracle? The latter, by far. Look, miracles in and of themselves are fantastic, without question, but God always uses them for a higher purpose. Whether it's as a sign to unbelievers, so that the lost come to salvation in Him, as we see here in Acts 9. It may be to, uh, to build up and strengthen the faith of the church. As we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to Jerusalem of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And the word power in that verse, in the Greek, is dunamis, which again is the word we use for miracles. In lots of other uh, passages throughout the, Old, uh, the New Testament. So miracles were being performed through the apostles, and as a result, the church was being built up and strengthened in their faith. Uh, miracles may also serve to provide for God's people. We see that with the manna, miraculously given uh, to Israel during their desert wanderings. So miracles that we experience are certainly wonderful um, to our own ends, and they should be. But they always serve an even greater good to His end. Okay, And we should never miss that. Right? However, in my opinion... The church, I think particularly the charismatic renewal, um, the Pentecostal movement within the church, of which I've been a part of most of my life, has been guilty of missing that, I think, a lot. And in some cases, we really need to retool our focus when it comes to the miraculous. I've talked about this before, okay, but I'll mention it again because it's germane to this discussion. When it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, particularly the supernatural, there are inner workings and there are outer workings. So when Saul was blinded by uh, the light of the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, that was an outer working. The regeneration of Saul's heart, the saving power of God at work within him, that was an inner working. When the apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 in the upper room with tongues of fire that appeared above each of them, and there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind, those were outer workings. The power and gifts of the Holy Spirit that came to dwell in and transform the disciples, that was an inner working. And, and we can go on and on and on with examples of this throughout Scripture. But the point is, outer workings of the Holy Spirit are never normative. Okay, Inner workings are always normative. In other words, 
the inner working of God in our lives, the regeneration of our hearts, the spiritual healing, the, the peace and joy and understanding that he gives us, the power and strength that we gain when he lives inside of us, the ongoing uh, work of sanctification in every believer, those are all inner workings of the Spirit of God. And they are repetitive workings. They're miracles that he performs in believers all over the world throughout history over and over and over and over again. They are normative. The outer workings, those outward manifestations of the Spirit of God that sometimes occur in conjunction with His uh, inner working within us, those are sometimes, you know, the strange, sometimes really bizarre uh, happenings that we read about in Scripture. Maybe you have witnessed some of those in your lifetime, in your own walk with Christ. I have. Those outer workings are not, nor were they ever intended to be, normative. Not everyone sees a blinding light when they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? We don't see tongues of fire or hear a mighty rushing wind every time the gifts of the Spirit are imparted into someone's life. Because the outer workings are never normative. And I'm not at all against the outer workings. If the Spirit of God is manifested in some strange outer working in connection with an inner working, that's entirely up to Him. The departure from outer workings being legitimate is when we begin chasing the outer workings instead of the inner workings. And in my opinion, this is where the church has in some cases taken a wrong turn. We hear about over the years, you know, some people experiencing some kind of a holy laughter or something like that when they're worshiping, which may be legitimate. But the next thing you know, it becomes a movement. And people begin to flock there and try to get the holy laughter and bring it back to their own church. And then someone else writes a book about five keys to getting the holy laughter or whatever. And before you know it, the outer working has become the focus. You can fill in the blank here, but certainly in charismatic circles there have been movements over the years. Which were nothing more than misled Christians chasing the outer workings of the Spirit of God when they should have been eagerly desiring the inner workings. Okay, so miracles are still valid today, absolutely, yes. But those individual miracles alone are not the end goal. In Philippians 3.11, after describing all of his sacrifice, uh, in order that, he says, by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead, the Apostle Paul then describes what should be the true goal of every Christian. In verse 14 he says, I press on toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the goal is perfect fellowship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity, long after this life is over. Of course, Jesus himself makes it very clear. After talking about uh, all of the daily needs of our lives, all of those things that we tend to fret over in the areas in our lives where we often pray for miracles, he says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Matthew 6, 31-33. Jesus doesn't say, don't seek an answer. Don't pray for provision. Don't seek help from God. No, all of that is fine. As long as the priority of seeking Him comes before everything else. Why? Because there's always a higher purpose. Okay? I know that some of you today have needs in your life right now. 
And the answer to that need being met would mean a miracle. And I can tell you that I'm praying for some miracles right now in my life for this church. We're growing. And as we grow, needs present themselves. And the, the provision for those needs can seem impossible. And indeed, by our limited human understanding and without God, they may be impossible needs. But with God, <laughs> with God, nothing according to His will is impossible. And so we should pray for those needs, yes. For our individual needs, yes. And for the needs of the church, absolutely. Focusing on His will to the very best of our understanding and always being diligent in those prayers to seek Him first. To rely on His power and understanding rather than our own. Because He absolutely is a miracle-working God today. Right? He still heals. He still provides and delivers and restores and strengthens us in miraculous ways. And those miracles may come through others that he sends to do his bidding. Or they may use circumstances before us. He may just perform that miracle directly in your life supernaturally. How he chooses and who he uses to work the miracle is entirely up to him. So don't ever doubt that God wants to do great things. Incredible things. Miraculous things in your life. Because He does. He wants to bless you. But you got to know it's even bigger and better than that. Because He wants to use you and that miracle that He performs in your life to affect the lives of those people around you. He wants you to be a catalyst for something that's greater, something even bigger than the miracle itself. So even as you're keeping your eyes open for the miraculous, stay focused on the true goal. If we can do that as a church, as a family, together, we'll see him do far beyond what we could ever ask or think of. The Apostle Paul says it, best in his letter to the Ephesians. And I'm closing in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work where within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is no limit to what God can do in your life today. Stay focused on Him first and live in faith according to the power that is at work within you, understanding that you're already a walking miracle. You're already a walking miracle because you have the Spirit of the Almighty God living inside of you. What greater miracle could there be than that? 
Let's pray.